Welcome to Therapist in Your Pocket, the podcast that's here to wrap you in warmth and sprinkle a little bit of sunshine in your life. I'm your host, Lucy Ellis, and I'm thrilled to have you here with me. I'm passionate about creating a safe space for open and honest conversations where we explore the depths of the human mind and heart. My mission is to enliven, inspire and enrich your life by helping you discover your inner strength, your worth, your uniqueness, your special source. Remember though that Therapist in Your Pocket is not a replacement for professional therapy. The insights and the advice shared here are meant to support and inspire, not to diagnose or replace individualized care. Your well-being is so unique and so personal to you. So self-responsibility is key. What we discuss may not be 100% applicable to your unique circumstances. So let's embark on this transformative journey together with an open heart and a spirit of exploration. You're in great hands and I'm here to guide you with warmth and understanding. Let's dive in. Welcome back. This series that I'm doing is uh, inviting my mentors in, mentors that have, I suppose, influenced me as a therapist. And today I'm introducing you to the lady who brought Shauna and I together. Now, my regular listeners will know Shauna as a monthly guest on this podcast where we explore dreams that you send in and we also discuss different dream topics or ways in which you can work with dreams. And so today we're talking to Dr. Leslie Ellis. She is a leading expert in the use of experiential and somatic approaches in psychotherapy, in particular for working with dreams, nightmares and the effects of trauma. She is the author of A Clinician's Guide to Dream Therapy, which is actually where I first came across uh, Leslie and from reading that book, enrolled in her embodied dream work program or course. And uh, because of this, um, she uh, offers this training in embodied experiential dream work, which is what I did, and nightmare treatment. She has a PhD in clinical psychology with a somatic specialisation and a master's in counselling psychology with a focus on depth, Jungian approaches. She worked as a therapist in private practice in Vancouver, BC for more than 25 years. She's a former adjunct faculty at Alder University and past president of the International Focusing Institute where she's currently a certifying coordinator. Dr Ellis has published numerous book chapters and journal articles on the use of focusing and dream work in psychotherapy, 
including a recent article on nightmares and the nervous system for the APA journal Dreaming and an article in press on the Nightmare Suicide Link. She has presented her work to a worldwide audience, including a keynote for the International Association for the Study of Dreams, a nightmare treatment talk at MIT, and a featured presentation for the World Person-Centred and Experiential Psychotherapies Conference. So I'm sure you can understand now why I'm so excited to be talking to Dr. Leslie Ellis. Welcome. Thank you. It's so good to see you again. It's been a few years since I since you were in my class, so it's just lovely to reconnect. Yeah. I was reflecting back on that actually because it was during I don't know um what your situation was during COVID, but in Australia we had many lockdowns. And that was when I, you know, this doing this program with you was throughout the COVID lockdowns. So it was such a beautiful little hibernation bubble that I was in. And it felt very, you know, like a dream at, you know, being locked down and having COVID, you know, um, as this thing that just um, shocked the whole world. It was like a bit of a dream capsule that I was in whilst doing that program. So thank you for keeping me sane. Well, weren't you also get, attending in the middle of the night? So like it was like a dream anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah, you, yeah. or some really ridiculous hour that you had to get up to be at the class. So it early was quite dedicated. Early, early morning, morning, yes, yep. but like what two or three or four or something like that I can't yeah, remember exactly I can't remember but I was fresh out of my my dream world <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. still partly dreaming <laughs> yeah but definitely mm-hmm. worth it yeah I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that and um in particular the beautiful relationship that I've created with Shauna so um as part of the program Leslie paired us up with uh I suppose, dream work buddies where we would get together in between the classes and practice, you know, working dreams with each other. And I know that some partnerships may not, you know, connect, but I mean, Shauna's in Oklahoma and I'm in Australia, Newcastle, Australia, and um, somehow we just made it work and, and we really hit it off. And so then after the the you know, we've, we had done the pro, full program with you. We kept just meeting monthly to work through our dreams together. And it was pretty incredible. Some of the work that I have done with Shauna and her, me, has propelled us in all sorts of amazing directions in our life. So forever grateful. I'm so glad you um, you continued and that it, it fostered this great connection. It makes me very happy to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, very grateful that it's been so wonderful. So let's dive into uh, how I first came across you, which was reading A Clinician's Guide to Dream Therapy. And I've pulled it from my bookshelf and I was flicking through and almost um, coming across like um, – in that first section where you shared about how, you know, your life and how this you had this incredible dream that, um, you know, just touched you so deeply and is still with you now. 
um, was almost like fresh eyes that I was learning about you all over again. Um, and so I want to, sp- I suppose, ask you, how did you get into um, or how did your interest begin with dream work and the potency of the work? So um, I've always been kind of a dreamer and a daydreamer. I've always been interested in dreams, uh, but to the actual dream work, I started um, maybe in, I would say my late 20s, maybe, doing some of my own dream work. I saw a Jungian analyst and started actually looking into my dreams, and very shortly after, I decided to study to become a therapist, and I went to Pacifica Graduate Institute, which is a very um, Jungian-oriented depth psychology school. So we learn dream work as, a, as an intrinsic part of doing therapy. It was a, actually a very big part of doing, um, doing our therapy work. And I didn't realize that it wasn't more mainstream. I thought, I thought everybody would learn dream work, but it turns out not so much. But I do remember watching one of our instructors, uh, Dr. Lionel Corbett, who uh, mostly uh, talks about the intersection of psychotherapy and spirituality and psychotherapy as a spiritual practice, but he's also a master dream worker. And I remember being in class and all my fellow students as well were just in awe of the work he did with dreams. And he just did demonstrations and it just seemed so incredibly magical. Honestly, I remember it to this day. I, I remember being one of the volunteers who volunteered my dream and feeling like he could just see right through me. It was so, um, you know, not in a bad way, actually. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was, I still remember the dream I brought too, it, which, it, which was, um, well, part of it was about this car that I had. Uh, I lived up in a place you could only get to by boat. So my car had to live in this rainy parking lot. I couldn't put any, uh, couldn't put it in a garage. And it was a little Alfa Romeo not fit for a British Columbia winter by any stretch. We get so much rain and it started to leak in through the door and then the the seat got filled with water and then on really cold mornings the seat would freeze. And so I was I was having this dream about sitting on this block of ice. And um his very practical advice, besides other things he said about my dream was that maybe you should get a new car. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, was that was my first encounter with, you know, um you know, the awe of the magic of what dream work could be. And, and then I, you know, in my practice, I always would tell people that I saw dream. If you have dreams, they're welcome, bring them. And it's never been something, you know, it's always been a piece of my work. And I really couldn't imagine being a psychotherapist without that. And not that everybody brings dreams, but it really just makes the work go so much deeper and into so much more depth, you know, just depth and and, uh, directions that are creative and new. And so that's actually why I wrote my book because it, I discovered later on that it's not mainstream and that clinicians, if they don't have it in their um, sort of regular counseling training, they don't feel confident working with dreams and don't ask about them. So I, I, wrote the book and developed a program to fill that gap because I feel like it's just 
So valuable. And I think I'm preaching to the choir with you here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's actually why I looked for your book. Um, I didn't know I was looking for your book, but I was definitely looking for a book like this to help me in practice because uh, I would do work with clients and then the next week or the next time they'd come back to me, they'd say, oh, I had this dream, you know, since seeing you. And I didn't know what to do with that dream. You know, they would bring me a dream just, um, but it's felt relevant, you know, to the work that we were doing. And I felt like I didn't have the tools to work with that or or bring that into the session. And, and that um, just intrigued me. So, and I wanted to really know how to work with dreams. So that's why I um, came across your your book and now yeah it's I recognize that it's what whatever we're working on in our um, awake life is certainly going to be supported by our dream life as well or it's going to show us potentially where we need to look or where we haven't looked um, so it just creates that um, therapy um, and for the client for the client's um, uh, therapeutic journey is just become so much richer and deeper do you find though that I mean obviously you're known now very well known as you know somebody that likes dreams but in the initial stages of being a therapist people bringing dreams did you find a hesitation or a resistance to working with dreams because we don't hold them in a light that says that there's anything worth looking at? You know, they, they just seem weird and random. Sometimes uh, those, you know, I found more resistance, honestly, with um, people, with therapists who were, um, maybe, you know, scoping out my program or interested in, you know, finding out more. But there was a lot of skepticism about dreaming. And with clients, because of my, um, you know, I just advertised as a focusing-oriented, Jungian-oriented psychotherapist, people would tend to come to me because they wanted to work with their dreams. And so... I didn't encounter a lot of that because just because of the nature of, of you know, how I put myself out there. Um, but, I, you know, it's interesting because I just wrote an article uh, for my newsletter on dream resistance. It, it came up in one of the um, classes, and it was interesting because I have everyone do like a, a short presentation uh, about an aspect of dreaming, and somebody was, you know, just kind of bravely saying, I have a real resistance to bringing my dreams, to working with them. And and so I explored all the ways that people can resist dreaming. And I feel like there's a an inherent resistance to dreams because they, like you described, they, they point in directions that we haven't thought about. They get under the surface. Often they're the things that we resist or kind of don't want to look at. That You know, they make us a little bit uncomfortable. And even if we don't understand what the, you know, the parade of images 
aura that come in the night, we can have this vague suspicion that there's something a little challenging about it. I feel like that's a, a, a reason that people tend to dismiss their dreams or think, oh yeah, that's just a bunch of nonsense or I already know what it means or various ways that people resist them. And I think forgetting is actually a form of resistance as well. And so I feel like it's a very common universal um, initial take on dreams is that, oh, this is something I, I sort of think our emotional system reads it and goes, oh, there's something here. And then our rational brain goes, no, it's nonsense. And so I feel like that's kind of how it happens. And yet what happens with, say, your experience or mine is that you have a, a magical experience with your own dreaming or with someone else's uh, as a guide and you realize that once you um, move through that resistance there is just so much um, so many gifts in our dreams absolutely I I believe that as well and and quite often um, I might get somebody to say say I had this weird dream it's not related to the work that we're doing, though. <laughs> and I go, okay, let's, would you be open to, like, just let's exploring that? And then after the session, they're going, wow, I didn't, yeah, even, I think on face value, they look just silly or weird or abstract. And because our, log- because I think we've been conditioned to be more in our logical brain, um, they're, you know, they're brushed off, but um, there's something so, like you say, magical and spiritual about these dreams and what they offer us. Are you working a dream at the moment? Um, yeah, I've had this dream that's been visiting. I wish I had my mug here. I've been, I've had this dream about a fox, and I've had a series of dreams about animals that are sort of partially wild, partially um, live at the edge of where people live that, that are, you know, that you could have an encounter with. And in this dream, I have an encounter with this fox that, I love foxes, by the way. I have this fantasy of having a pet fox, even though I know that's not okay because they truly are wild animals. But there is um, some place in Russia where they breed them for pets. And anyway, I'm not going to do it, but I, I, I just, <laughs> but I've I just love it. them. <laughs> I have, yeah, they're just beautiful little critters. And um, in this dream that I'm at my place in um, Salt Spring Island, and there's a, a fox out by the garage, sort of in the woods there. And it's the color of an Irish setter, so really red, rich red. And um, I go out, and it, it, it sort of comes to me, but it's not sure, you know, like a an an, wild animal that's like wants to, wants to connect but isn't quite comfortable. And it anyway, it comes and sits with me. It um, turns into more of a smaller, like the more orangey red of an actual wild fox. And... Yeah, it's kind of that. It just it's just unsure, but it 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 feels like it kind of tenses, and then it it just like it it gives. It just gives in. It just relaxes. It's like okay, it's safe, and and I I feel like that. You know, in my in my dreams, I've had a series of these ones where an animal that's like um, partially wild, sometimes prehistoric, a sort of a mix of different animals, but um, 
on the threshold of domestic and wild, and they come to visit me. And I've, I've been thinking about it in terms of my own animal wildness and that part of me that I, I really value and have kind of neglected in, in recent um, years, I would say. I, I've done much fewer sort of trips in, in the woods. I used to go a lot and just by myself out in the woods for, for days and, you know, just paddling or hiking. And, um, yeah, I think that that is what's calling to me through these streams, at least one aspect of it is that, to not lose my um, connection with my animal nature and to get out in the, out in the wild more. Mm, um, yeah, so they keep coming because I still haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's as close as you're going to get to a, a pet fox is um, <laughs> them coming to you in your dream. That's lovely. They like come and play in our, in our hood. I don't need to come to your hood. <laughs> You can come to it. Yeah, <laughs> it is like that, although it's interesting because at first it looked more like a fox dog and then it became more of an actual wild fox. And as it was sitting with me, it was very much wild and it was like, I'm tolerating this, but this is really not my comfort zone. And, um, you know, it's it's true. It's like, meet me where I am instead of making me come, you know, into your world. I don't really belong here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gorgeous. <laughs> gorgeous. That's lovely. I really wanted to dive in today with you about the, the all the research that you're doing with regards to uh, this nightmare and suicide link. Um, and so what I understand from the reading I've done from you is that um, I'm not too sure of the percentage, maybe you will know, but before somebody takes their own life, it's been recorded that their their dream world is very dark. It's they're having lots of nightmares, and that through helping somebody, instead of the traditional way of supporting somebody that's suicidal, which is um, talking to them in their awake life about you know um, things, it's actually rather helping them, helping their dream life improve through supporting them with their nightmares and that that has had by doing that we actually can improve their dream life and then that correlates with having a better um, waking life yeah all-round life yeah it's so the um, evidence for um, a link between nightmares and suicide is very robust. Uh, one of the, the the studies I quote most often is um, is this. Um, I think it's a Swiss study. I'd have to double check. But the um, what they did was they looked at I think it was about 180 or so um, inpatients who were hospitalized for a suicide attempt, and they tracked their dreams. And those who had frequent nightmares were literally 400% more likely to reattempt. So it was dr dramatic. I, and there's been many, many um, studies that have, you know, really um, solidified the evidence that this uh, link between 
frequent nightmares and suicide exists, and it's been extended to adolescents. There's been quite a few studies extending it to adolescents. So what's really well established is that if you have frequent nightmares, you're at a much higher risk of suicide, especially if you've had an attempt already, and that the medical establishment, when they're screening for suicide, they'll ask about sleep disturbance, but they never ask about nightmares. And another interesting study showed that there's a progression in how your dreams change. Um, if, you're, if you're at risk of suicide, the, your dream life starts to get darker. You start to have more nightmares, and there, there can be more dreams about suicide. And so, um, and it's like about three or four months out from a suicide attempt, uh, they did this retrospectively, that the dreaming starts to shift and it gets more intense and darker. And so you can actually, if somebody is at risk, you think they're at risk of suicide, one of the questions that you should ask is, how are you dreaming? And that can tell you whether, you know, the the level of risk is something to take really seriously. Uh, if they're having frequent nightmares, it's much more uh, likely that it's a serious um, threat. And in terms of um, in terms of treatment, now this is a theory of mine. We've, I've worked with a lot of people that have um, PTSD and nightmares and suicidal uh, thoughts and nightmares. And the things that I know is with frequent nightmares that most people don't realize there's something you can do. There, there's a very low percentage, like it probably averages out to about 10 or 20% of people that have frequent nightmares actually get help for them. So they don't realize there's something they can do or they don't know who to ask or if they do ask, they don't encounter someone who actually knows how to help. And so there's very, um, the, the treatment picture is very sparse. And so is the research on how this could impact suicide. It's really an area that hasn't been well researched. And so I suspect that because there's such a strong link between nightmares and suicide, that if you can give people uh, some hope that their dream life can shift, that that could make them less likely to uh, attempt suicide. But there isn't, there hasn't been any really formal study on this. It's only just been um, a lot of studies on the the correlation between frequent nightmares and suicide. It just stands to a reason to me, though, that if somebody has a very tortured dream life, as well as a tortured life, they have nowhere where they can um, feel hopeful and their sleep is disrupted, which makes everything worse, that if you can also help, you know, do, uh, do the other interventions you would for suicide, but also ask about their dreams and talk about their dreams, because if you can help people have fewer nightmares and have less distress from their nightmares and get a good night's sleep, then the world looks like a better place. And their, I think their likelihood to uh, want to take their life will, will be reduced. But I mean, I would love to see some research on this because I, I, I've developed a protocol for working with nightmares and it really does. And there is also some established well-researched protocols like imagery rehearsal therapy, ways to just imagine into the dream and dream it forward that aren't that they're not difficult to do and they can make such a difference. So I talk about it a lot because there's just such a huge gap. There's a clear link and there's not really much in the way of treatment or research into how, how to um, 
intervene at the level of dreaming. Mm. And you've hit on a, something that I, I'm thinking that the listeners wouldn't also be aware of is that they coming to a dream work therapist, mm. yes, you, at dream work um, we can look at potentially the messages within the dream, but what we haven't really discussed is actually how we can change the dream landscape through dream work. So I don't know if you can talk into that a little bit about how working with your dream, we can actually improve the dream landscape, make nice dreams instead of nightmares. Well, um, I, 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 it's not easy all the to always to change the way we dream because there's been some studies that look at dreaming over the, over the lifetime. And in fact, we kind of tend to have the same themes throughout our life. And they, um, they surprisingly don't change all that much. <laughs> but um, I would say that, you know, like they change in response to our emotional landscape. So if, our, if we're having a very intense time, our dreams will reflect that. If we're having, you know, a really good time, our dreams will reflect that. But what I think you can really confidently say is that when you spend time with your dreams or you're working with clients and their dreams, that you can completely change the relationship that somebody has with their dreams. So I, I can think of this one example of a, a client who just loved, loved, loved dream work. And her dreams were among the most violent gory, bloody, scary dreams uh, that I've ever encountered. Honestly, that, that uh, consistently she would bring dreams that were really dark. They looked really dark. But what I've come to believe is that you can't judge a book by its cover or a dream by its images because the valence in the dream world is not quite the same as in the waking world. And she came to love these dreams. We spent a lot of time with the images and uh, unpacked what they what they meant for her, and they were intense, and the images were alarming. But what we got from the dream work was deep and enriching, and she just kind of got used to the way that her dream world presented itself. It wasn't um, that... It's interesting because you know how sometimes dreams can be of a beautiful um, field. There's something that seems quite bucolic, but there's a lot of creepiness and fear in the dream, whereas sometimes it can be like a haunted house and it's not scary. So I, I feel like I always step back from the image and try to see it as if it's brand new and I've never really encountered it before and I'm not going to judge whether it's uh, positive or negative, but more just a really come at it with a beginner mind and be curious. And virtually everything that you approach with that curiosity is going to feel more interesting and less threatening. And so I wouldn't say, for example, that this person's dream life shifted dramatically. It, it did change. I will say, but mostly it was that her relationship to her dreams was very different and she didn't see them as negative. She saw them as interesting. She saw that when her dreams really wanted her attention, there was more, more violent images and they were really, I think it's our dreams way of getting us to remember, making the image really striking so that it actually makes an impression. And 
dreams are just inherently melodramatic that way. So if they're going to present something, I can think of like my daughter doesn't mind me sharing this dream. So I often share this one as an example where she dreamt that she was um, that she was in university and she dreamt that she was cutting a woman to pieces, really gory. She's like, "Mom, I have to talk to you about my dream." And my she was quite alarmed, of course, by this image. But when we unpacked it, it was you know, and asked her what was going on with her about a feeling of being dismembered or divided or what it would be like to be that woman that she was cutting up. And she said, oh, you know, that really do relate to feeling divided and, and dismembered. I'm not, she was living in, in a city in Montreal in the winter. She's an outdoors person like me and she couldn't get outside for a month. I think it was like a month. And she was, you know, there was a part of her that was feeling so disconnected from her her you know essential nature and the dream was about that and the dream was actually a, a, a um it, it was a, a wake-up call for her she went next time she came home she brought her cross-country skis and she you know just made an, a point of getting outside even though it was really cold and just you know tended to that part of her and understood that it was really important I think like a dream that has a lot of blood and gore is just saying like it's its way of taking a highlighter pen and going, this is really important. And so once, you know, a person has that perspective on nightmarish images, then it feels different. It feels like, oh, okay, this isn't great, but it means pay attention to this, you know? And so it changes um, how you, you know, how we relate to our dreams as not, not intrusive, but actually as helpful. Um, and the more intense they are, the more, um, they're really just trying to push us towards something or like to see something. Mm, yeah. It reminds me of a dream that I had uh, where uh, I was staying in a camp. Um, it was like a festival. Uh, and um, things like we weren't being fed and there was all these things that were just going wrong. And so I went to speak to the principal or the organiser and he was really, really intoxicated. And I was complaining and telling him about all these things that were going wrong. And there, meanwhile, everybody in the festival looked like they were having the best time, but I wasn't. And he shot me. He shot me once in the stomach and he shot me in my kneecap. And through exploring this dream, and I did this actually on my own, I recognised it was the first time I ever became sober. Uh, you know, it was a time where actually he was representing alcohol and what uh -huh. alcohol was doing to me was preventing me from really enjoying life and was hurt, harming me. Um, and... It's something that I just carry with me today, you know, um, and not mm. that I felt like I had a problem with alcohol, but I was already on the precipice of, is this really good for me, you know, um, and yeah, it really helped me shift and, and become sober, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a very, I could have just thought, wow, that was a scary dream and but actually after sitting with it and working with it, I recognised what the dream was guiding me towards, you know. 
and now I can yeah. be at the festival and dancing and enjoying my life and squeezing all the, the good juice from it. Wow, that's such a good example. And I do think that um, dream characters can personify our, um, you know, what we're up against, uh, whether it's, al- you know, alcohol. It's like, a, you know, clear when you see it after you decipher it, oh, this man is intoxicated. He represents my relationship to alcohol and he is hurting me. And then it's not so scary. It's more just like, oh, well, now that makes sense. And it's also, you know, not just um, hurting you a little. He's hurting you a lot more than you would have thought. And I love that about dreams. They're really honest. They're not, they don't pull their punches, you know. They're really, they'll give it to you straight, even if it's hard to hear. And I really appreciate that because I, I think, especially, you know, in psychotherapy, when people are coming to work through their issues confront their demons and yet they don't always like really get down to it or you know or sometimes I think the more, more most difficult things don't get talked about easily and dreams just give you this incredible uh, opening to talk about what's truly important but maybe hard to hard to bring up or hard to access and so I know, I, I love that. And I, I, I find um, a lot of times that a scary dream character is a clue to something we're up against and, and that, that the nature of it is really specific to us. Yeah, yeah. And so I can see how helping somebody that is depressed uh, with these dream images, it's creating... For me, a connection, a deeper connection to myself and um, and a, a richer experience in my life. So I suppose I can understand how supporting somebody with their nightmares and allowing them to f- experience that connection is just so healing. Yes, I, I feel like nightmares are the most um, potentially healing dreams even though they feel intrusive uh, they are vehicles for transforming something really important and I have rarely have nightmares but the, the the most transformative dreams I've had were nightmarish you know were, were, were frightening alarming um, felt dramatic and I always see those dreams now and go, oh, there is something important here. It's a way to underscore the importance of it. And and I will say there's one kind of nightmare that isn't quite as simple um, to say, you know, oh, it's a good thing to have, is that the uh, dreams after trauma that are uh, a, a, um, a symptom of post-traumatic stress can be replicating the trauma so there's a way that if the trauma hasn't been metabolized those nightmares can be intrusive and they can be repeating the 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 scariest part of what someone has experienced and disrupt their sleep and affect their mood and so they're a little bit of a different animal than more typical nightmares in that they're almost like flashbacks 
really rather than true dreams. And to me, I use them in a diagnostic way because I think uh, there's a f been about three or four studies that have pointed to this, how when your dream, the closer your dream is to an actual traumatic event, the, the, the less metabolized it is, the more healing you need to do. And then as those dreams start to shift and have more um, dreamlike, more metaphorical, more different, you know, temporal anomalies and current and past times are start to mix things up like dreams do, the more you can say, okay, this is beginning to become like a normal memory versus an intrusive memory. And yet I also think that the dreams are trying to help with that process, that they are helping us metabolize it. And the problem is they can be so intense that they wake you up and your dreaming doesn't get to do its job. And so that's where I feel like, you know, um, treatment is much more imperative. Uh, lots of times we can have dreams and, you know, let them pass by. I think it's a missed opportunity, but, you know, no harm done necessarily. But with, with dreams of um, post-trauma, they're also linked to a higher risk of suicide. And there's a, um, a more of an urgency because they get stuck in this cycle where the dreams wake them up and the dreams don't complete. And then there's a um, just a whole pattern that kind of it's self-perpetuating. It can be. It's the one kind of nightmare where I say it's not benign and it's trying to help, but it's not succeeding necessarily. And you may need help with it. Um, those specific dreams where, and I would say if you're listening and you have a nightmares and, and trauma to think about, just consider how close is this dream to your actual traumatic experience. And if it's really close, then it means that that hasn't been metabolized. It needs some, you need support with it in some way. And um, if the dreams are scary, but there's, you know, there's ways that it's starting to weave in current scenarios, current life situations, and um, feels, you know, a little bit more like a, a classic dream, then it, it means that some of the healing is starting to take place. That's wonderful. And you have done some work, um, a study actually in the book, you mention it, um, with um, a group of refugees. Af yes. Afghani refugees, is that right? Yes. Yeah, PTSD. they were refugees from all over the world. Okay. Uh, it was... Uh, an uh, agency called the <laughs> VAST, short for Vancouver Association for the Survivors of Torture, which is a, a, a not, it's a kind of a dramatic name, but it, they weren't all necessarily survivors of torture. That was just the acronym they used. And it was a, um, an agency set up. So when immigrants came to Vancouver uh, and had trauma, they were referred to this agency. And I trained the um director of the agency as well as um, their staff in how to work with uh, how to work with focusing in the body and trauma in the body and also they um, offered to be a site for my study on nightmares because they said the number one complaint of these people that were coming to them was nightmares they said if you could help us with that one thing it would just change the world for a lot of these people so I did I started Sadly, I didn't get to complete the study in the way I wanted to because it was um, 
an agency that had been there for 25 years, beautiful, run in this little house, and they always had a, you know, racks of clothes and a soup pot on, so people could come that were newly arrived and get um, food, food and and counseling and clothing and and um, and most of it was run by volunteers and our federal government at the time in their great wisdom shut it down their funding was so minimal but they shut it down and so my in the middle of my study so I it didn't get the whole cohort through that I wanted to to get a statistical analysis and instead um, I, I fortunately had recorded all the sessions that we did do and there was enough data to do a qualitative study and look at the impact of, I trained all the staff and they did um, dream work with them. And it was incredibly um, promising that in that some people's nightmares just stopped. Some people, um, their nightmares started to shift. It seemed like the, the people that had landed and were settled in a situation where they could heal this really helped them. And there were a few people who were still in, you know, question about whether they were going to get their immigrant, immigrant status and, and or their lives were in flux or they'd been separated from their families. Those people did not, you know, ha show any negative impact or positive impact. But I, I think this is just really true. And from what I know of the nervous system and um, in that when we don't feel safe, our body is going to be oriented toward protection against threat and the healing just can't take place. We have to feel safe before we can heal. And so I think that the, you know, where these kind of interventions don't work is if the person isn't yet in a settled and safe place and our bodies are just going to be oriented toward uh, defense as opposed to recovery. And so I can, I can see that, you know, it's a, it's a study I would, I would like to, do again with you know just to actually complete the research because it what we did as much as we did was promising and what it showed was that um, the dreams would change in relation to kind of how our bodies respond to threat so it would start off being like a um, a fight response uh, you know it would be uh, let me see how it goes the hierarchy is like if we initially encounter a threat we have a fight flight response Either or, they're the same. It just depends on the nature of your foe. If they're bigger than you, you run. If they're, you know, the same size, you fight. So, But it's the same activation in your body. Um, or if it feels completely like you're overwhelmed, then your body goes into a, a, a freeze or a collapse. And so the dreams were kind of representing these states. And as people got better, it went from freeze to um, flight, to fight, to more of like a sense of home or safety. And there's a, a progression that follows the way our nervous system responds to threat, which is why I then have become interested in the nervous system and how our nervous system might be, um, might be part of what gives our dreams their content. So it kind of led me to like the research I've done recently on nightmares in the nervous system and how you know, the, um, our habitual responses to threat very often will show up in our dreams. That was a lot. <laughs> that was a mouthful. That was great. I was just <laughs> absorbing it all and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Uh, with the nervous system feeling heightened, uh, then, yeah, the, the nightmares might come because that's the state of being that we're in and and also it makes sense that you're exploring this because uh you know it 
for you're an embodied dream work um, practitioner. So we're always embodying, like you 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 mentioned earlier with your daughter, uh, with your daughter's dream. Imagine embodying that that lady that's been cut up, and that that might seem quite scary um, originally to do. Um, uh, but if you are open to embodying certain aspects of your dream, this is where we find our messages. Yes. Well, in fact, you know, I think about that. And, and, and as um, alarmed as she was by the image, when she imagined into this woman who was being cut up, immediately she, she understood, oh, I, I, I know this feeling in me and I know what this, you know, this divided, dismembered feeling is and immediately recognized it in herself. And uh, then it took away a lot of the fear around it because it was like, it's dramatic. It's a way of saying, you know, wow, this is really important to remember and, and, uh, and, to, and to do something with. But once that kind of the dramatic nature of the dream has done its job, she then went into it and it was like, oh, okay, it's, it's this. And it wasn't as scary as all that. It was just really important, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's so true. And um, one beautiful technique that you shared with us, which I really do believe helps the client feel ready or okay to embody those scarier images and because always when they do that, the message is a very familiar feeling that they have because it's, you know, representing a part of them. But something that um, I find that I use um, and has has been so helpful is actually first let's find the help in the dream because there's always help um, in the even the darkest of dreams. Yes, that's from uh, Eugene Jandlin and Focusing. He developed a method of working with dreams that included um, ideas from Jung, ideas from Freud, some Gestalt ideas, but also his own uh, addition was this idea of finding and embodying the helpful forces that he said are present in every dream, even the dark ones, and that Honestly, if you do that with a dream, find and embody the help that's in there, you don't really need to do anything more as was his, you know, the rest is kind of like interesting to explore. But once you find it, uh, you can you can get what the dream is trying to bring you. And I didn't initially train in, in that sort of focusing oriented dream work. I trained as a Jungian. And I think that, you know, initially the advice was, just to go with the most dramatic, the central image, start with, you know, that place in the dream that seems to most want your attention. And it is a bit like jumping into the deep end. In some people, in some dreams, it's okay. But when I started looking for some help, some resources uh, first and embodying that, it, it, it's very similar to finding resources before you work with any sort of difficult situation difficult trauma um the 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 dream work became so much more powerful and constructive because it's like you know we talked about dream resistance and there's often things that dreams are presenting that are a little bit uncomfortable sometimes a lot uncomfortable 
And so if we can find all the allies in our dreams, not just even one piece of help. I look for every single place that, that's helpful now. I think why not pick up a whole bunch of resources if they're available. And then it happens that sometimes when a person does that with their dream, it isn't the same dream anymore. Whatever was the trouble isn't even relevant. It kind of shifts the whole landscape. And so I think this is probably similar to what you're referring to about how you can change your dream life is that, well, you're not changing necessarily what you're dreaming, but how you experience it can be so different and so much more interesting and helpful and constructive. And finding the help uh, as a place to start is is a um, really essential piece of that, I think. Yeah. And what it does as well is... um of course, because we we might have a powerful dream image, and we all our focus just goes there. But it actually allows us, when we're looking for the help, to step back a little bit and see the whole picture. So we're taking in more information, and uh, you know, it, it reminds me of a dream image that I'm working at the moment, where I've got this red back spider that um, appears to be chasing me. Um, and, and I, as you were just talking, I was just stepping back and I was looking at all the support around me and I'm, I'm on the beach, um, it's sunny, I'm with a friend, a beautiful long-term friend, there's so much good happening and you can see straight away, um, how that can start to change the, the narrative of the dream, yeah. That's great. Yes, it, and how you hold it in your body. Um, I, I really think, you know, in this idea of embodied dream work, that dreams are expressions of our emotional state, which is an embodied state. Our emotions are, are physiological events, and our dreams are giving us pictures of those. And it's easy, it's just natural, um, part of our evolution, I think, to focus on what's scary and negative in any picture. It's, it's a survival mechanism. But in that scene you just described, most of it is actually not scary. And so the tendency to focus on the negative is something, I think, to override, the, you know, just not just in dreams, but in general, uh, that, you know, the world isn't as dangerous as we, it might appear if, you know, all we do is hone in on the spider. Um, but picking up, your, your, your dear friendship and your, you know, the beautiful setting, all of that is at least as important. And even some of the things, I think it also gets you to look at, there's often these funny little details in dreams, like there's a, you know, a particular person off to the side or some kind of weird um, vehicle or, you know, whatever happens in dreams, you know, there's all these little funny things that you think, oh, you want to dismiss them. But very often those are help too. Those are, or, represent something when they're unpacked it's like oh I need that that's that's really something I wouldn't have thought about and yeah that's helpful and so it's fun to actually you know go through the um, dream and find all the resources that are in there and the other thing I've noticed having done this many many times is that the particular objects or helpful elements in dreams they're the right antidote they're they're the thing you need to make you able to be with the spider or the difficulty. They're, they're not just something generally helpful. 
they're in that dream because they're related. They're helpful in a specific way. And so you can also, you know, just generally try to relax or breathe or do all kinds of things that calm you. But it seems much more potent to find the help right in the dream. And, and also, if you have the dream again, then the help is there present in the dream itself. So I notice what happens when people start doing this kind of dream work a lot is that there's more aware, awareness within dreaming as well more of a, a, a lucidity or a partial lucidity where you can go, oh, I think I'm supposed to look around for some help here because that's what I do with dreams. And then suddenly the dream itself feels a lot more helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Absolutely. And yeah, when you wake up, um, your, your relationship with that dream is uh, already you know, you're feeling a lot more connected to it um, because of that and you're not maybe dismissing it or scared by it. Yeah. Wow, we've touched on so many wonderful things with, uh, about dreams and I hope our listeners have um, just soaked up this conversation as much as I have and I've absolutely loved it. Um, thank you so much. Some of the things that we've spoken about and highlighted potentially for people to take away is you know um, the the process of looking for help in the dream um, and understanding potentially why we resist um, looking at our dream but then also knowing that um, yeah these dream images can really help us to propel our life forward and create um, a, a depth and a richness to our life so thank you so much for your time oh it's a pleasure I love talking about dreams and I really enjoyed our conversation and it really we covered a lot in uh, the time that we had and and really um, I think opened up you know all the uh, uh, all the critical doorways I would have wanted to speak about I, I don't feel like we've missed anything important I mean there's obviously more we could say we could probably talk for another hour quite easily but I, I just yeah it was a pleasure to speak with you about this yeah wonderful thank you so much and um we'll chat soon I'll see you around with all yeah, the bits and pieces so. that you do I'm <laughs> following you along and um yeah it's wonderful thanks thanks for doing this magnificent work Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I love I love what I'm doing. I love dreaming. I love dreams. I love teaching about dreams, talking about dreams. So yeah, this is this is easy for me. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> and I wanted to mention as well another reason why I read uh, the book and then enrolled in the program is because of our last name. I was like, Oh, we have the same last yeah. name, same initials. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was like, Oh. She must be amazing. And so, it, <laughs> so it's Ellis's. true. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually working on a, um, a new edition of the book. I'm updating it uh, over the next probably six months or so. So I'm going to have more on focusing dream work in there and more on nightmares and just a few things that have the, – the research in dreaming has continued along, so I'm just going to make it um, more up-to-date in all ways. So. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'll have to get the, the updated copy. 
Yes, I'll let you know. I'll let everybody know when it's out. It's not going to be for about a year or so, but uh, it's it's fun to revisit, and uh, it was it was well received. So I'm going to try and keep it fresh. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Take care. Okay. No, it's so nice to connect with you again, Lucy. I really hope you enjoyed that beautiful conversation with Dr. Leslie Ellis. It feels so wonderful to have this amazing support around me as a therapist and have these incredible people stand behind me as I am working with you. Support really helps shape us into the version of ourselves that we want to be and also is there to help us in the the days where we feel like we don't have anything in the tank. And so if you're looking for support, not so much for your career, but if you're looking for support in your life, in navigating some tough times, in wanting to improve, not not improve yourself because you're already awesome, but to um, spend some time getting to know yourself, develop some deeper self-awareness um, and move away from all the shitty stuff that kind of tends to cloud us um, and not give us that connection with self that we are all yearning to have then I invite you to come inside the Heart Cave. We are, the doors are open until the 1st of March, actually the last day of February to be quite precise. And they won't open again for a long time. So now is your opportunity to say yes to yourself, yes to support, yes to community, Um, And yes to cleaning out some of that crappy stuff that clouds you and make space for more you, more connection with self and self-discovery and self-love. That's what we celebrate in the Heart Cave. If you would like some more information, you can head to the show notes and get in there. I'll see you in there.